0: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. What the heck just happened in Australia? That was the headline from one online magazine this week struggling to get its head round the shocking re-election of the Conservatives in the recent Australian election. Everybody got this election wrong, even Bert, the psychic crocodile, who previously had an unblemished record of calling elections correctly. In fact, the result was considered such a sure thing that some bookmakers had already paid out to people betting on Labour to win. In a few minutes, I'll be asking our in-house Australia experts whether there are any lessons here for other embattled governments around the world. I'll also have a word with Fed reporter Chris Condon about the US central bank's search for a new policy framework. But first, we asked Australia economy reporter Chris Burke to explain why the economic recovery down under has also been defying the odds.
1: This has been an extraordinary day in the Soviet Union where Mikhail Gorbachev has been ousted from power in what appears to have been a bloodless coup. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. It's one of the new summer movies we'll be reviewing this week on Siskel and Ebert. Home videotape of Los Angeles
0: police beating Rodney King.
1: Strong indications here at the Pentagon that this uh, war may,
2: may be beginning right now, and that the president
0: Going
2: the year is 1991. Exactly is the US goes to war with Iraq after Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. Vanilla ice tops the music charts. Ice, ice, ice. And the developed world's longest uninterrupted economic expansion begins down under. For almost 28 straight years, Australia has enjoyed steady economic growth without a recession. Not in 2001 where the tech bubble disrupted the US economy? Not in 2008, when the global financial crisis infected much of the world. Here in Australia, the economy has just kept on growing, but that streak now looks to be in real danger of coming to an end. It's all because a tumbling housing market is having some painful side effects. The slump is weighing heavily on household spending and inflation in an economy that's already sharply slowed and where consumption makes up almost 60% of GDP. Indeed, Australians long-held fear of a failing economy was on stark display just last weekend in the country's shock election result. While polls showed a change of government was all but certain, in the end, Aussies just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Prime Minister Scott Morrison managed to convince voters that their economic prosperity would suffer if the Labour opposition won office. Australians are particularly nervous right now. Their house prices have lost 8% since a 2017 peak after a five year property boom ended with a thud. But the worst has been seen in Sydney, the most populous city and the nation's economic powerhouse, where prices have sunk more than 14% from their peak.
3: I just
2: come through to level two. I recently visited Wentworth Point, a suburb crammed with new apartment blocks, about forty minutes northwest of central Sydney by train. I wanted to see just how gloomy things were in the housing market, so I arranged to meet real estate agent Alex Chidiac at an open house he was hosting for a three-bedroom apartment on the side of the city's Parramatta River. So we've seen that the, the numbers of uh, people attending our open homes drop dramatically. If this was on the, on the market
4: say two years ago, we would have expected at least, you know, ten groups come through on a on Saturday. Um, now it's, you know, we're averaging around three to four. Um, a lot of that, all the reason for that is because the, the um, finance conditions, it's a lot tougher now for them to, to borrow money. Um, so some people have disappeared altogether. Seen the number of investors drop significantly. So, this, was, this is currently owned by an investor. Um, and they're, they're looking to, to get out, mainly because you know, they're finding that finance conditions are harder.
2: Australia is having its own version of a credit crunch. After binging on debt for five years to buy houses that were becoming more and more unaffordable. Australians were saddled with one of the highest household debt levels in the OECD, and their banks became the most exposed to housing in the world. But the money has since dried up. In the last two years, a combination of regulatory curbs and a widespread probe into the financial industry that exposed lots of bad behavior has seen banks turn off the taps. Investors are now getting a frosty reception and owner-occupiers are being more scrutinised than ever. I met Ankit Sharma and Arani Samanathan, a couple inspecting the open home in Wentworth Point. The two young doctors were recently married and are searching for their first home together. I asked them about the process of getting a home loan. The upshot? If you like your Netflix, you might be in for a hard time. And are you finding that kind of a difficult process getting the home loan? Is it, it maybe taking a bit longer than yeah. you expected? Yeah, difficult. <laughs> we just got it after
1: applying in January. Yeah, was it, it was a know, long
2: time to get We just it. got it pre-approved, yeah. Was the kind of criteria much stronger than you expected?
0: Yeah, I think um, it's stronger, more, more strict with, you know, what they consider as income, what they and what they consider as yeah. liabilities. Like yeah.
2: they're seeing how much you spend on Netflix. And yeah, other exactly. Stuff. <laughs> Everything counts, yeah. <laughs> Did they actually ask you stuff like that? Yeah, yeah we have so to fill
4: out forms with every detail of our spending from getting yeah. out to holidays to...
2: Any
0: subscriptions. Yeah, subscriptions, gyms, yeah.
4: insurance, every yeah. detail had to go on the credit form. card,
0: you know, summaries. Wow. Were,
4: and they analysed yeah. our credit card, so <laughs> we'd get them back saying, what was this expenditure? Yeah, why is there
2: a recurring expense here? Australia's economy is presenting policymakers with something of a conundrum. The worst housing slump in a generation has played out amid a roaring hiring boom. Thousands of new jobs are being added each month. So by and large, most people are managing to meet their mortgage repayments. And while annual GDP growth has slowed to 2.3%, that's still only slightly below its decade average. This may all provide some comfort for now, But the jobs boom is showing signs of weakening and the unemployment rate has been creeping back up. The Reserve Bank is worried that's going to see a further drag on household spending and this week said it was considering cutting interest rates for the first time since 2016.
0: the thing that I think would really shift the balance of risk is if we were staring down the barrel of a softer labor market over the course of 2019 and 2020. Incomes growth will slow further and it also brings I guess into play the prospect of poor selling in the housing market which is not something we've had as of yet.
2: Sally Old is JP Morgan's senior strategist for interest rates in Australia. One of many economists who reckon the central bank will be forced to cut rates twice this year to shore up the economy. So you recently changed your outlook for interest rates. To what extent did the housing slump play a part in that decision?
0: So housing played a role in the sense that it's clearly having an impact on, on the consumer. We've been quite bearish on household consumption for a while now, and part of that was to do with the slowing in house prices, but more of it was just around some of these constraints on the balance sheet starting to, to bind and make life a little bit difficult for Australian consumers.
2: However the property downturn plays out here, there seems to be a wide-ranging consensus that it's going to be long and painful. While prices aren't falling at the speed they were a few months ago, they are unlikely to return to their 2017 peaks for years. Not only that, many of the investors who once fueled the apartment market have left town. Some of those investors were likely scared off by the long-expected election of a Labour government which plan to strip investors of lucrative tax benefits. But that's not happening now, and could offer buyers some incentive to return, if they can get finance, that is. The Reserve Bank recently warned that a glut of Sydney apartments were a risk to the economy after 80,000 new units flooded the city in the past few years. In Wentworth Point alone, more than 3,000 apartments are still waiting to be started or completed. I joined Alex, the estate agent, on a quick tour of the area in a golf buggy that he uses to get around the large estates of apartments. Alex, are you sure we're going to take this golf buggy on the road? Yeah, we're, we're all right. We're registered. Are we going to be stopped by the cops? Uh, we're be right.
4: So just to give you an idea, so here on the right, yeah. it's a future development site re There's yeah. towers up to 20 stories on that block.
2: Um, Who's going to buy them?
4: It's hard to say. They haven't started selling them yet. There's another development that was that we just passed. That was on the market. Um, they have sales haven't gone as well as they hoped. So we're finding now that they've sort of put things on the back burner, and the project's been delayed. Um, I, don't know. I think it's until they start moving them again, um, it'll probably probably won't get off the ground.
2: If everything else in the world was a bit rosier. Australia's property slump might not be such a threat to the economy on its own. Indeed, the Reserve Bank still thinks the correction is an orderly one. But the problem is that it's happening at a time when wage growth is still sluggish and global uncertainty abounds. Australia's economy is more exposed to China than any other in the developed world, with about a third of its exports going there. And the jury is still out on whether China can rebound from a recent soft patch amid its ongoing trade dispute with the US. Add to that a big question mark hanging over global growth, and it's understandable why watchers of the record-breaking economy are a bit nervous. As a Kiwi who spent six years in their country, I can tell you that Aussies are a pretty resilient lot. There is something to their age-old mantra of she'll be right, which basically means that whatever comes along won't be the end of the world, so have a beer and a barbie and enjoy the sunshine. But if their record stretch of economic growth should come to an end, that complacency is going to be sorely tested.
4: We also understand that you have to take the good with the bad. You know, the, the good times weren't going to last forever. Um, and it's, I guess it's just a, you just got to deal with with, with what you have so eventually I think we will see it turn and and when it does, you know, we'll, we'll be here to make the most
2: of it. I'm Chris Burke for Bloomberg News.
0: So that was a little bit on the miracle of the Australian economy and also the miracle of the Election last week, surprisingly, the re-election of the conservative government in Australia, where nobody, literally no one, expected them to win. I'm sitting in a noisy newsroom now, talking on the phone down the line to Tamara Henderson, who's our economist for Australia and indeed Southeast Asia and New Zealand um, for Bloomberg Economics, and also Malcolm Scott, our managing editor for Asia on the news side. Malcolm, can I start with you? I mean, pers- you're sitting in Sydney. Were you shocked by the result on Sunday?
3: I was surprised. I'd said to all my friends about a month ago, the only way they can win this is by a relentless negative attack on what was a very big target. In uh, in a departure from the norm in Australia, the opposition Labour Party went to the electorate with a very detailed policy proposal. uh, A whole bunch of tax initiatives, climate initiatives, Um, a a big redistribution plan, moving income from uh, older generation to the younger generation. And it was a huge target and it backfired. The Liberal Party and the National Party attacked the policies. They attacked the, uh, the climate policies in the seats where jobs were at stake from them. And it worked.
0: Well, it reminds me, actually, it's funny, because we've got rather used to to election upsets, you know, the surprise of Brexit vote, the surprise of the Trump uh, election. Um, But the big one uh, that was was in my my sort of early in my life was in 1992 in the UK. And the way you're describing it was kind of similar, that after many years of conservative government, uh, Labour was expected to win. And they were extremely confident. And on the back of that had a very detailed plan, which even included... Um, raising taxes on a certain chunk of the electorate, the people on higher incomes. And that was credited afterwards as the reason why they had, that the Conservatives actually got re-elected against everyone's expectation. And then nobody ever ran in Britain on a campaign promising to raise anybody's taxes ever again. So I wonder whether that will be the lesson for Labour. Is there something also though in this idea that the economy um, people gave the Conservatives, even though it may have been a bit of a mess under the Conservatives in terms of changes of leadership and everything else, that they had um, produced this very long recovery, potentially against the odds? Um, Malcolm, again.
3: There was something to that. And they'd also restored the budget to surplus. Now, in Australia, that's a big deal. People want the budget in surplus. The former Labour government had taken it into deficit in the response to the financial crisis. They promised to return it to surplus time and time again and never got there. Now, the coalition came into power a few years ago and they've uh, restored some uh, some curbs on spending. And uh, bit by bit, they've been able to increase revenue. Uh, but Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, just leading into the election, was able to declare that, yes, after a decade of deficits, budget surpluses are back. And that really boosted the traditional uh, view of the Liberal National Coalition as strong on the economy.
0: Tamara, if you're an economy wanting to know how to Have an endless recovery and no recessions. Is there anything to learn from Australia or are they just in the right place at the right time? You know, so dependent on the Chinese economy uh, when China was strong and the rest of the world was weak, but then also with their own uh, domestic growth as well. Well, they have a couple of factors. They've got some shock absorbers. One is the currency, it tends to be very responsive to global global demand conditions or commodity prices. And yes, they've actually got, become much more linked to, to Asia and especially the, the Chinese, Chinese economy. And, and when China's stimulating their economy, there, there are knock-on factors for Australia. But also, this is a domestic demand economy. So that factors in greatly. And, and during, some of the times when, when the rest of the world have, have been in a slump, Australia has happened to have a situation where the household spending has, has been in the right place, or even investment has been in, a right, in the right spot. So remember, we had that mining investment boom going on as well, just after the global financial crisis more recently. And Malcolm, what does it mean? I mean, does the election have any big impact on economic policy in the short term? I guess there's, you're not going to have all of those proposals from the Labour Party being implemented,
3: but... That's exactly the chief, the chief difference, it's a removal of risk. You know, some of the economists had been worried Labor was going to revoke some of the concessions for tax, for investment in property right at the time that uh, property is struggling. They were going to add new taxes on the cl- on carbon emissions right at the time that there is struggles to get sufficient baseload li- base power uh, to Australia's cities and the, uh, the the tax and spend dynamic of labor uh, was was a bit of a threat to the continued growth. It was a threat uh, that they justified on the grounds of fairness, but the removal of that uh, means a status quo and you know uh, economies and economists often like the status quo
0: well, uh, I think the lesson for uh, other parts of the world is if you want to uh have a really long recovery, be next to China, and if, and if you're gonna have um, a debt-fueled housing bubble, try not to have it burst the same time as everybody else. If Australia now has its crisis, I suspect it will be much less serious because it's not happening at the same time around the world. I'm joined now by Federal Reserve reporter Chris Condon to talk about something completely different but possibly more important to many of the people listening, which is the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve's review of how it goes about its work. Chris, there's a, there's a big conference coming up, which if you just looked at the program, it would be one for the nerds. But actually, we, we, we should really care about this. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a big uh, academic style conference in Chicago. It's really part of a year-long process. Uh, the Fed in particular is examining its mandate from Congress to keep prices low and stable. And they're thinking about how do we interpret that and how do we go about trying to fulfill that mandate? The moment, of course, you know that since 2012 they've had an explicit 2% inflation target. Um, but, you know, inflation has been low. They've failed to meet that target for, ever since they've had that target. They've been below 2 percent. So they're trying to think of what should we do to lift inflation. Um, And there are a number of ideas. Some of them are quite technical, um, but quite controversial, I have to say. And already, even before this big conference, they're running into some serious pushback from the Ph.D. community about whether or not the biggest economy in the world should be experimenting, essentially, with its inflation target.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that. Of course, we all quake at the thought of the PhD community being against us. I'm jolly glad that they're not against me. But uh, what kind of thing are they looking at? I mean, why is it? It does obviously seem odd to have, We think of central banks as being dedicated to fighting inflation, but as you say, they've kind of got to get their head around the fact that they haven't been producing enough of it, and actually the US has been a bit more successful at that than countries like uh, the central banks like the European uh, Central Bank in the Mm -hmm. last few years. But what kind of options could they be looking at? And someone was talking to me about maybe having a a price level target or having an average inflation target. I guess those Mm -hmm. things are quite hard to explain to people, but why would they work better?
1: Well, mostly, I think we can, we can put them into a category that we can call makeup strategies. So at the moment, when they say they want to hit 2% inflation target, that means if it's below 2%, they want to push it back up. Um, and no matter how long it's been below 2%, if it then subsequently goes above 2%, they want to immediately push it back down to 2%. So they're always aiming to bring it closer to that target. Now, they've been under it for so long, they're worried that that becomes ingrained in the way households and businesses react. In other words, they, they think people will expect it to continue to be below, and that, that will worsen the problem. So one of the, well, several, actually, of these proposals um, would have the, the Fed, after a period of undershooting persistently for a while, would, would have them aim to deliberately overshoot so that uh, kind of over a longer period, inflation would average around 2%. And that would keep the expectations of people, whether it's individuals or people running companies, keeping their expectations for inflation in the future to still be around 2% rather than deteriorating over time, which they're very much worried about right now.
0: I guess the question is, if you've already failed to achieve one target, and you're going to effectively try to raise it, and then say, "No, really, this time we're going to get e- we're going to, get to deliver even more inflation than we did uh, before." Is that going to be credible to people? Is it really that, going to change people's expectations? That is an extremely
1: good question. Really, it, it comes up all the time. If they can't hit two percent, how can they hit two and a quarter or two and a half? You know, I think it it, it comes down to their resolve. Inflation, as economists like to say, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. The one thing that central banks ought to really be able to do is push around inflation. And I think it takes a little bit more resolve and in, 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 in also the freedom that a new strategy would give them. Um, with the target set as it is now, I think there's always worry that there'd be some um, political reaction if they were seen to be letting it run, you know, reacting when it's rising towards 2% in a way that's allowing it to go beyond that. If they sold the strategy beforehand and then followed through with that, perhaps they'd be a little braver about actually uh, essentially letting it rise, as unemployment, as you know, is, is quite low. If they just don't react to any um, initial rise in inflation heading as it heads back to 2% and then let it go, perhaps they'll, they'll be a little bit uh, more successful. But recently, of course, they've, 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 they've stuck with their old instincts to keep ahead of it and try to cap it at 2%, and that's only resulted in them being below.
0: You'll be going along? You'll,
1: you'll keep us informed? Uh, I will be. Several of us will be going off to Chicago. Um, And, and, you know, if I could just add, it does reveal uh, both in the political field and within economists, I think it reveals an interesting generational split. Um, A lot of folks who are old enough, who, who lived as adults through the very high period, the great inflation of the 70s and 80s, still think quite fearfully about what will happen with inflation if the Fed doesn't very aggressively fight back against any incipient rise in inflation. You see that when Jay Powell goes to Capitol Hill and some of the older lawmakers um, kind of give a shot across the bow when he starts talking about re-examining the inflation target. And you see it also among PhDs. You, You know, the one guy at the Fed who's most pushing for a rethink about this is John Williams, one of the younger Members of the Federal Open Market Committee. So I think that's also uh, an interesting, revealing aspect of all of this debate.
0: Well, we are—we are all creatures of the times in which we grew up. though hopefully, not in our our clothing, um, bring return of flared trousers and God knows what kind of music. <laughs> Chris, thank you very much. I am sure we will return to this topic.
1: I'm sure. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics, it's simple, on Twitter. You can also find me on my Stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Chris Burke was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Malcolm Scott and Scott Lammon, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Tamara Henderson, Chris Condon and Malcolm Scott. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.